0: The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello and welcome back, everyone. I hope you all really enjoyed getting back into our rhythm and that you've had a chance to catch the latest episode, episode seven of the Star series, Becoming Elizabeth. If you haven't, there are spoilers ahead. Listener, beware. Even though the series was on hiatus last week, I did release an old interview I had with Rebecca on the Tudor's dynasty, all about my research on Mary Boleyn and her relationship with her sister, Anne. So I hope that was a fun episode to sort of fill in the gap. But now we're back, and I have all my usual observations and plenty of commentary about the show, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. So when we left off, really brief recap... In episode six, Thomas Seymour was executed on over 30 counts of treason. And Elizabeth came face-to-face with the reality that she will have to marry someone, and soon. The Dudleys are on the social and political rise, and we're just waiting to see how all these new lines of drama will play out. And they didn't disappoint. We started off very dramatically in this episode. They opened on a scene showing King Edward, with the support of his new Lord Protector, John Dudley, has sanctioned the burning of a priest. Now, the royal family in court were all sat to observe the execution at Whitehall Palace, and Elizabeth sat by her brother, very clearly and understandably emotional, totally disgusted, to watch someone burn at the stake. And Robert is also there, and he is seemingly surprised by what's happening. And he's sort of looking at his father, John Dudley, with this sort of new realization of who his father may be or what his father may be capable of. In this portrayal, Edward is actually very stoic. He doesn't seem to mind what's going on. And of course, says the standard, you know, we've got to set an example and so on. But let's fact check this a bit. There was a lot of commentary on our thread this week about this particular event. Um, So it is true that during his reign, King Edward allowed two people to be burned alive for their faith. However, the two people he sentenced to death were actually Protestants. But they were what we would consider extreme Protestants for the time. And Edward was actually quite devastated to have to order any deaths at all. So the first person who died was a woman named Joan Bocher, and she was part of the Anabaptist Church. And this is a church that denied that Jesus was Christ in human form. Uh, and they also did not believe in the baptism of babies. This is a pretty traditional practice in the church and the Anabaptists didn't really agree with that. So it is said that when Edward had to sign her death warrant, it was only at Thomas Cranmer's urging. And it said that at the time of signing the warrant, Edward made it clear that Joan's death should be attributed to Cranmer only. Edward did not assume personal responsibility for that execution in his soul, whatever that may mean. Um, And she was burned at Smithfield in May of 1550, which brings us um, to where we are in the show nearly a year later, April of 1551, a second martyr was burned and his name was George Van Paris. And he was a Flemish immigrant did not speak English at all. And George had formed a church in his immigrant community that sort of followed the teachings of a 4th century African theologian, Arius. And the belief was referred to as Arian. So essentially, this Arian church didn't believe in the actual divinity of Jesus. So Joan didn't believe he became human, but But George didn't believe Jesus was actually divine, didn't believe Jesus was God. Based on the gender and the time period of this episode in the show, we can assume the man who was burned alive in this series was George Van Paris. However, in reality, he was not burned at Whitehall, but at Smithfield. So in response to the question posed by Queen's podcast, shout out Queen's podcast, about whether the show is giving us an accurate portrayal of King Edward, I would say sometimes. Historic record does seem to suggest he really didn't like or agree with executions, so perhaps he isn't quite as temperamental as his father. Listeners Laura and Julie were curious to know if King Edward even attended this execution, much less the whole royal family. I was not able to find any documentation to suggest that the king attended this execution. In fact, his hesitation to order it at all makes it a little more likely that he did not attend. However, following the death of Van Paris, it is written about Van Paris that he died with, quote, constancy, end quote. And uh, he even kissed the wood and the sticks piled around him. The poor man uh, couldn't even receive a sentence in his own language. He needed an interpreter. Um, so this was a particularly sad execution. Now, don't judge me on this next bit, because inquiring minds like mine have to know, you know, I thought the death in the show was rather gratuitous. And that person seemed to suffer very terribly for a long time. So I did some research on how long it would take to die from being burned at the stake. And the way that this scene is set up, um, I I don't think it would have been this dramatic Um, because in the scene, the sticks are piled up really high, almost to George's face. So he would have probably passed out from the heat and the carbon monoxide, some sources say within 30 to 90 seconds. Now, this obviously wasn't always the case, But the way it is depicted in the show, I do think that George would have been unconscious long before he passed away. So while this is violent to us, you know, it's still a preferred death to being drawn and quartered. That would have been horrific as well. But I digress. Let's return to the story at hand. We return to some familiar scenery with our privy council. But surprisingly, Somerset, who was released from the tower on Dudley's orders, he is allowed to remain on the council. And this is a fact Henry Gray expresses contempt for, and I think pretty reasonably so. I I would also be upset if someone I knew committed a crime and was still allowed a position of authority. And then Dudley sort of sets the new rules, sets the new expectations of a council where he's in charge. And he says, you know, we're going to support the king. We're going to reform England and we're going to burn dissenters. And then they had to throw in, and I know you noticed it, make England great again. A cringe-worthy modern reference that absolutely no one asked for. There have actually been a few moments in this show where it makes me wonder if stars understands that Americans watch this show and like modern infused humor kind of takes me out of the story because it makes me sad. Anyway, (laughs) we find now uh, that Edward has decided his sister, Mary has received way too much leniency and it's sort of his intention to limit her freedoms Uh, And he's giving this interesting reasoning that she's been giving, she's been given freedoms as a woman who's being treated like a man. So he's definitely setting up his sisters in this episode for concepts of marriage. Uh, They need to take their place. They don't need to be kind of running the ship as it were. But there's a distasteful suggestion that Mary should also get married to a Protestant. And the Spanish ambassador immediately goes to Mary and says, you have to leave England. You've got to go back to Spain. But Bishop Gardner reminds the princess, you know, you can't leave England. You can't leave your people. You are the Catholic people's like last hope. So there's a lot of pressure here for Mary. Mary. And Gardner also has to kind of admit to Mary, he has to humble himself and say, you know what? I really misjudged this Privy Council. I don't really understand what's happening with Edward and with Dudley as the new Lord Protector. Uh, And it turns out it it was good that he warned her because all of a sudden John Dudley is at her home and he's removing all of her religious iconography and elements. And Mary tries to stand up to him and she reminds Dudley that he has protection and she doesn't. And yet she will not flinch to fight for what she believes in. And again, we're getting a really interesting separation of characters here between Mary and Elizabeth. Now, of course, Mary is much older she's much wiser. She's seen a lot more things. Um, But this is sort of, I think, what we expected to see from Elizabeth in this series. And we're actually getting it from Mary, um, which I'm not complaining about. I love seeing Mary in this light. What I do want to mention is, uh, according to the showrunner, Anya Reese. There is an incident where Dudley does actually like assault Bishop Gardner, but it didn't actually happen at this particular moment. So the assault in the series is a quote homage end quote to the fact that it happened but shouldn't be taken as having happened at this moment in history. Then, of course, Dudley is telling Gardner, you know, I'll throw you back in the tower. And then he sets Mary's religious items on fire. And there's just like a lot of fire in this episode. And if there's a series two, I'm scared, y'all. Like, uh, this is already enough fire. Can you imagine what's coming in a series two? Oh my goodness. So then back at the palace, King Edward is totally unbothered by any of this. And he's sort of having like a guy's night in poker night with his uh, privy chamber and some of his friends. And, um, you know, he's called for Elizabeth. So it's fun to see this lighter side of historic figures whose private lives are often just so secretive. Uh, You know, I love that. I've said it before. So Elizabeth arrives and she sort of playfully joins the game. It's supposed to be kind of a lighthearted moment. You know, she sits on her brother's chair and um, she's sort of teasing the other players, which, of course, makes this the perfect time for Edward to reveal that he's hosting Prince Frederick of Denmark at court and intends to pursue a betrothal contract between Elizabeth and Frederick. Not a strange place to deliver that news at all. Like, I guess the phrase read the room like doesn't apply to kings and that's fine. But, um, you know, curiously, he's done this in front of everyone and she sort of reduced to begging her brother in front of his friends not to move forward with this contract. Uh, And she ultimately sort of storms out of the room and Robert follows her and he's been kind of um, sheepish in this episode. He hasn't really spoken with her meaningfully up until this point. And we kind of know it's because he's entertaining thoughts of maybe Amy Robesart, but here when he follows her out, we, we have an equalizing of their friendship. Uh, Cause I was wondering how quickly they would depict his heart's changing allegiance Uh, But this is a slow burn, and I like that. So Elizabeth is clearly distraught about Prince Frederick because he's illiterate. And yeah, that would never fly with Princess Elizabeth. Um, A little fact checking on this revealed that Frederick was probably actually dyslexic and not illiterate. But at the time, it's all people knew what to call it. So again, Elizabeth now has to resort to begging Robert. She's like, speak with your father, speak with my brother, the king. You've got to help me. And then Robert says something that is beautiful foreshadowing. First, he says, Denmark can't have you. England isn't done with you yet, which to me was like he was telling her that he wasn't entirely over her. Like he's England in this scenario. And I'm kind of into that. I like that a lot. We love poetic parallels, baby. So then he says something else important, though, which is that politics is a game and that Elizabeth is good at games. Actually, actually, you guys, what he says is we are good at games. So he's including himself and whatever plan will exist to manipulate the system and I think that is so fun I am just so excited I really hope there's another season of this so we can see what happens next so after this um, interaction we're taking to a new scene in a tilt yard so fun to see jousting was anyone else just sort of reinvigorated by that I didn't realize how much I missed it until I saw it And obviously people are watching the joust. It's like a practice run. And Henry Gray is asking if the participants are body doubles preparing for the Danish visit. And then I was just pleasantly surprised. They've actually shown King Edward participating for real in his joust, which gives us such a nice parallel to the version of a young Henry VIII, which we so often romanticize as sort of the strong character. So we're seeing Edward as sort of a man of strength. And it disputes the common myth that he was a sickly child uh, because he was actually a healthy young man who later becomes sick. And so I really appreciate this. But I definitely get the feeling that the people um, Edward was practicing with seemed like it was Robert and his brother, Guildford. um, They were sort of letting Edward win. Is very much in like a knight's tale when everyone knows the best writer is the black prince. So they all surrender. And so Edward, I mean, Edward liked jousting. We know this, but I don't know how good he was. Um, I can't say to that. So for me, well, and actually also for some of you. You all said this. We kind of collectively experienced a little whiplash in this episode over how we are meant to feel about certain characters. So, for example, it seems like Jane Grey is supposed to be unlikable again. And I do understand that having empathy for this character version and thinking that she is rude are not mutually exclusive. I get that. But I'm finding that Jane's insistence of being an equal to Elizabeth on the marriage market is like, it's not subtle in the writing, but it's also kind of mean, Um, but kind of a silly version of mean, like Mean Girls, the movie version. And listener Terry wrote this in the thread as well. Um, Not the Mean Girls reference, that was me. But just that Jane is coming off as being kind of mean. So if we were to recast Mean Girls with the cast of Becoming Elizabeth, Jane Grey is Regina George, right? Now hear me out, Princess Mary is actually Janice, because she's like formidable on the surface, but ultimately, right, she's got a heart for justice. She loves a little revenge, but she also loves her friends. And then, obviously, Princess Elizabeth is Katie Heron. Um, I don't know why I, I just did that. But there you go. Heck of a sidebar. Um, so back to Jane and Elizabeth. Their conversation is obviously central about the experience of the wedding night. Jane is sort of seeking reassurance. She wants insider information. And Elizabeth is on to the game. She's not going to play the game anymore. So to me, again, in Mean Girls, this is like the scene where Regina George is like, you're so pretty. And Katie's like, thank you. And then Regina's like, oh, so you agree. You think you're pretty. You guys, what if Mean Girls is actually the original becoming Elizabeth? Like, what if that's what it's based on? Mm, I think I've just figured out. I've cracked the case. Anyway. Anyway. In all fairness, Elizabeth does catch herself up a little bit. Revealing perception of physical and emotional pain can be kind of changed by love. And this is the revelation that sort of triggers Jane to call Elizabeth a whore. You whore. So, I don't know. This scene has strange beats that are created by the script, not by the actors themselves. Um, So I'm not really sure how this particular dialogue conversation lends itself to help us as the audience figure out what we think about Jane. She's obviously the foil to Elizabeth in this phase of the story, but I don't really know what the point of that conversation was. It, it didn't seem very necessary to the story. Um, and then the next scene was equally as difficult to read. And that was when Elizabeth was sort of whisked away to meet her sister, Mary, outside of the palace. And again, a, they start as they're sort of discussing how they're trying to fight these marriage matches. But in this scene, Mary... Like the stakes are higher for Mary because she's destined right for this match that will send her away to a different country where she can't practice her faith. Um, And she's in a catch 22 because if she actually flees to Spain, it's treason because she's seeking refuge and alliance with a country other than England. And so that might start a war. Talk about high stakes. But. Here's where I'm confused by this scene and by its content. We've been commenting all season about how present Mary is at Edward's court, how close they are. But here in this moment, she is appealing to Elizabeth to communicate with Edward. And all I can ask is why? It's like all of a sudden Mary has no one who can speak with the king and she doesn't feel like she's able to either. Um, And then amidst all of this, Mary is still trying to be sort of a motherly figure. She embraces Elizabeth several times, and she's clearly trying to find a path of least resistance, but it becomes very clear that that may not exist. Listeners, Brooke and Ashley, both are interpreting the development of the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth as a bit volatile, And and maybe that's part of the reason why um, it felt like these characters were not communicating effectively in this scene. Um, Again, Mary's stakes are at level 100 and Elizabeth is sort of like coming around to just performing her duty. Right. So they're on different pages here. And so that volatility is probably a pretty good read. Um, But there are some great layers here because think about Mary. You know, she grew up without power. She watched her mother struggle for power that she was duly owed. And now Mary is making parallel choices to her mother to stay or to go or to fight for what is rightfully hers or to live a life of removed safety. So like that's some generational trauma to chew on. And then in a similar vein, listener Running Mama thinks Elizabeth's portrayal has been a bit entitled and petulant. And I do somewhat agree here. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think Elizabeth is the least interesting character in her own series, which is too bad. Well, maybe Jane Grey is a little more uninteresting. Um, But let's also remember being 14. (laughs) Like, I don't know about you guys, but 14 was rough and I didn't have any marriages to avoid or executions to attend, thankfully. So I think petulant and entitled are probably pretty on the nose. Um, but what it does mean is that there's room for some creative interpretation and for Elizabeth to grow. See, this is why we need season two. We have to watch her become Elizabeth, right? Um, Okay, so remember I was talking about how Robert was looking at his father at the start of the episode at the execution. Um, I think that look comes full circle in this next scene. And like I figured something was up, but obviously Dudley seeks out his son, Robert, and they have this full argument over Elizabeth and her potential marriage to Frederick. And Dudley basically tells his son that his feelings for the princess – better not ruin this potential match. So it's sort of giving me the conversation between um, Thomas and Somerset. Like we're, you know, we're not meant to marry princesses. And obviously that's what Robert wants to do. But for Dudley, the family needs the foreign match to work in order to gain some respect and some power. Um, But at this point, Robert is so disgusted by his father and this ruthlessness that his father is demonstrating in this new place of power. I really think Robert is turning on his father a little bit, sort of like villain origin story here. Um, And the way he feels for Elizabeth is obviously being used against him and being used to threaten him. And I hate that. So hashtag protect Robert. At all costs. Um, But obviously, that conversation isn't off the mark. Because in the very next scene, they gave me what I've wanted all season. Which is for Robert to declare his love for Elizabeth. He finally did it. But you guys... They did it in a way that kind of like paralleled language and this sort of pressure of time and urgency and this demand for reciprocation that we heard from Thomas Seymour in the first several episodes. So even though I got what I wanted, it didn't feel good. And that is so sad, but probably more realistic than anything. And of course, Elizabeth notices and feels this too. She even calls him Thomas a couple of times. And that is so painful because I think these characters are so different in this series. Um, But if you're just looking at language and the approach and the appeal for love, you know, she's not wrong. Um, And this time... She keeps her feelings to herself. She doesn't uh, make declarations and she doesn't try to run away with him. And instead, she chooses very definitively to go head first into her duty as a princess. And this is kind of bittersweet for me because I think Robert is so great, but Elizabeth needed this growth. Um, so I understand why she rejects him. Uh, but obviously, between you and me, I think we all agree. I wish these kids could just figure it out. <sighs> anyway, it's probably me just reaching. But when they're on the staircase and talking to um, behind them are two candles burning. And it's giving me like twin flame symbolism. Sorry, not sorry. But the great Taylor Swift once wrote, did the twin flame bruise you blue? Just between us, did the love affair maim you too? And now I think I should learn how to make memes and just do exclusively like becoming Elizabeth and Taylor Swift mashup memes. No, right? Uh, but maybe. No, you you tell me. You tell me what you want and, and I'll see what I can do. But back to the show. Sorry, not sorry. Um. Elizabeth obviously arrives to meet the prince. It's supposed to be this big party. um, And she's just rejected someone she does love to pursue her duty only to find that the prince and his father, King Christian, have actually rejected her. Ooh, we're charting some tables here. And that letter of rejection suggests that because of Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn's reputation, and this persistent claim that Elizabeth is illegitimate, the Danish court has actually refused to accept a proposal of marriage. So Elizabeth is publicly humiliated at court. She, though, has I think she has her mother's fire in her the same way that Mary holds Catherine of Aragon's fire, because Elizabeth here gives this painfully honest speech about why she is being forced to answer for everyone else's mistakes. And then she says, if men are really so tempted by her or afraid of her, As a 14-year-old girl, then they should not have power at court. And I loved every second of this. And it shows she's learning because she's noticing court perception and corruption. She's saying the Privy Council should be taking personal responsibility for their failures rather than setting that weight on her shoulders. And she gets snaps for that. This is an amazing speech. Well done. Well performed. Well written. I loved it. And haven't we all wished we could give that speech once or twice? Um, But I do need, I need her to get out of victim stance, which is sort of like a therapy term for someone who sees themselves as a constant victim of everyone around them. Um, So basically we're waiting for Elizabeth to start acting like Mary. Um, Oh, and before I forget, listener Nancy mentioned Elizabeth's red dress in this scene, because this is famously based on a portrait of Elizabeth that was painted probably for her father near the end of his life, uh, in which she's depicted in a red gown with pomegranates on the pattern. It had gold threads and a cloth of silver panels, and then she wore the famous Boleyn B pearl necklace. Though, isn't it kind of strange that she would wear a pomegranate dress, which is the symbol for Catherine of Aragon, and then pair it with the Bullen pearls? I mean, I'm not a wardrobe historian, so I don't know all the details on this, but this seems kind of like a striking combination to me. Uh, and this series costumer has done a wonderful job incorporating famous imagery for the screen. Remember, we had a call to portraiture for Edward when he put on his cap with the feather. Um, I did ask and receive a response from two of the most up-to-date historians, uh, Drs. Joanne Paul and Linda Porter, who have studied Mary. And um, they said that they've not seen immediately obvious costume nods to portraiture of Mary. But there may be one portrait which seems to be held in a private collection or a very heavily protected collection at Penhurst. that rings true to Mary's outfit in the star's promotional photo of all three Tudor heirs. So for now, we have to take their word for it because we do not have access to it, uh, which of course makes that a fun mystery for me. And then significantly in this scene, King Edward is coughing, Through the whole thing And so he enters his chamber After the failed celebration And um You know, he's coughing and there's blood on his handkerchief, which is sort of this universal symbol now of tuberculosis. Um, It is one of the illnesses Edward is believed to have developed. In fact, this is what many historians believe weakened his system and made room for other illnesses to take hold. So this truly is the beginning of the end, folks. The finale episode is going to be jam-packed. Um, Listener Heidi pointed out correctly that we're still waiting for at least three weddings and a handful of other events to occur before Edward's, spoiler alert, demise. Um, So do you think they're going to fit it all into this finale episode? I think our heads are going to be spinning after next week. You're going to have to help me keep it all straight. Um, And then in our final vignettes of this episode, we see Mary Tudor arriving at her ship for escape, but ultimately she chooses not to flee to Spain she's got an internal belief that she's needed in England, uh, that she can be a dedicated leader for the Catholic people. And I do think there's desire in her heart to fight on behalf of her faith. But as foreshadowing again, um, all about fire, she acknowledges that to stop the spread of Protestant evil, it has to be burned. So season two is about to be lit Sorry, they started it and that joke wrote itself. (laughs) But you know, you thought it too. You thought it too. Um, And then as the final wrap on this phase of Robert and Elizabeth's love story, Robert takes his broken heart and he travels back to Norfolk to find Amy Robesart again. And, you know, he seeks her company, her comfort. I think he's sort of coming around to this idea of... Easy love. Or love that doesn't make him miserable. You know, he kept saying to Elizabeth, this can be simple. It's as simple as just running away. And so that tells me that I think his heart is tired. And Amy is a less complicated love. And I don't mean that negatively. Uh, We actually had the amazing historian Leanda Delisle add to our thread this week. Because I asked if Robert really loved Amy. And Leanda says, primary sources point to yes, which is great news. Um, William Cecil, who will become more prominent in the future, wrote that Robert and Amy certainly had enough lust to justify a carnal marriage, which suggests they mar- they married for love and, and not out of arrangement. Um, I also received a little input to set the record straight with our previous question about who Edward VI was named after. Remember, he had that conversation with Somerset about um, who he was named after. And Leanda actually says the young king was actually named after King Edward IV, a Plantagenet king. So that helps us round out where the name comes from. And I'm sending a huge thank you to Leanda for all that fabulous context. Now, uh, listener Marie... Doesn't want Amy and Robert to fall in love. But why, Marie? They have to. I'm so sorry. They have to fall in love. But then Flying Bird and Julie have both resigned to this plot line. Uh, and I think they both said that this. they think this is a love match. And actually, Flying Bird says, this is a whirlwind romance. And I really want to see a whirlwind romance that doesn't make me feel icky. So frankly, Amy and Robert deserve to have a moment to shine here. But you know, and I know the downfall is fast approaching. Are you ready for the finale? I think it's going to be a dramatic wrap up. And we'll get some insight as to whether or not a season two with Mary's reign will come to grace us. Actually, if this show has unified us all in any way, it is to say that Ramona Garay deserves her own season of story. I'm completely enchanted by her and really pleased that she's been given such depth as a character in this series. So I leave you all with a small fun fact about Frederick of Denmark. Although he did not marry Princess Elizabeth, his daughter Anne of Denmark did marry James VI of Scotland, who we know succeeded Elizabeth and became King of England, a.k.a. James I in 1603. So the royal family of Denmark eventually made it to the throne of England but that's a story for a different season. I'm wishing you all a fabulous rest of your week, and I'll see you back here, same time, same place, next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.